Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bible study. Glad you're here. Good to see you. We're going to open our time in prayer. So let's pray. Father, thanks for loving us. Thanks for speaking to us. And we thank you for your revelation. I pray for revelation tonight. As we've gathered in the name of Jesus, he's right here in our midst. I ask you, God, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would show us things and reveal things to us. I just ask you, God, for just heavy revelation into our hearts, into our minds, as we are open and as we will just soften our hearts and put ourselves in a position to receive, I just ask God that you would bring revelation to us and God would be able to receive what you want to say and what you want to show us. So tonight, God, have your way. I pray that we would be in a position really to receive, a position to see and to hear and to experience more of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one. They're available on the tables. Going to open up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And as you're opening there, a quick reminder that we do have an option for those that are not here or those that are here that if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to leave for us, uh, we have made provision for that. Through a website, www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. Uh, you use a button there, toggle a button, and it works sort of like voicemail. And you can leave us a message, question, comment, whatever you'd like to leave, and it gets emailed to us. So if you'd like to use that or you'd like to send us a message or a question, we'd be happy to go over that at the meeting after that. So, use it before we lose it. John 17, verse 24. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. I don't think that's John 17, 24. Yeah, Don, you were in Luke, man. That is. In fact, I've I've preached a lot of sermons out of Luke 17. Actually, where you were, I knew exactly where you were. Yeah. But yeah, I've done a lot of teaching out of that whole thing. So that's a good one. Hopefully, that's not a sign to move in that direction because I'm going to stay with John. I think. Okay, so Rebecca, you read something there in verse 24. Yeah. Could you read that again for me? Sure. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Alright, thanks for reading that. And uh, this is a section of John where Jesus is praying. Uh, John chapter 17, Jesus prays. He prays for himself, he prays for the physical disciples that are there, the apostles. And then he, he prays for all believers. And uh, understanding that, that that extended 
not only to the other believers that were living during that time, but extended to those that would come along that were far off still, like us. That we didn't, we weren't around 2,000 years ago, but he still prayed for us during this prayer. And so the things that he's praying in this prayer are kind of uh, important for us uh, in, in a lot of ways because they reveal his heart, number one, but also we understand that as he's praying, uh, he declared that if you pray the Father's will, in other words, you pray and you pray God's will, what do you know about that prayer? That it's done. It's done. And so believing that Jesus is praying the will of the Father here, and there's some reasons to believe that. It, we can understand that this prayer is more than just a request. It is that which is being told and said, this is going to be done. And so we can look at it with a pretty sure, like a pretty sure thing that this is what is happening. This is what's going on. This is what is being done. And so Jesus prays and, and he says this. He says, I will, he said to the Father, or I would, or I want. And, and those, those words that he uses there, they, they describe an authority and they describe a right. And and by that, I don't mean he was telling the Father what to do. By that, I mean he was praying to the Father as a son would. Someone that belongs. Someone that has the Father's ear, and he knows he has the Father's ear. He understands that. He understands who he is, and he understands his place, and he understands his purpose. And so, when he speaks that, he says, I would, or I want, or I will for his people to be with him. That's what he wants. And so he is saying that to the father as a son would to his father. And and there's there's certain confidence in that. There's a certain understanding in that. And and we as we begin to mature into our relationship with our father, we mature into our relationship with Jesus and our understanding of how Jesus has opened up a door and and opened up a specific relationship for us with the Father, as we can mature into that, our prayers, I believe, become more prayers of a son or a daughter to a father, and that son or that daughter knows that the Father hears them, and that the Father loves them, that the Father wants to do good for him or her. And so it's really us coming into that place of finding that place where we begin to understand who we are. We begin to identify who we are. And it's not just words. And it's not just, oh, you know, this is where we are theoretically. Or this is where we are uh, theologically somehow. It's got to get beyond that. It's got to get beyond just, well, this is what this commentator said, or this is what this person said, or whoever it was. It's got to get beyond those kind of things and really deep into us so that we can actually mature into it. You know, I think back when I was younger, I was uh, seven years old, six years old, when my mother met my father. Now, I know that sounds crazy. He's not my natural father. But she was working at a place, and he was her boss. And they began to see each other socially. They, they spent time together. Uh, they went on trips together. They took me on trips with them sometimes to see if I was getting along or not, 
or what would happen. And they decided one day they were going to get married. They got married, and we all moved to Georgia. I, I had to leave uh, the only house I'd ever known, the only family I'd ever known, was my grandparents raising me. My mom decided, okay, we're going to make a family now, found herself a husband, and then took me along. Well, the man that she married at some point decided he wanted to adopt me so that I could have his last name. And so we went to court. He adopted me. The judge asked me, uh, do you want to do this? And I didn't care because the guy whose last name that I had, I never met. I didn't know him. He didn't want anything to do with me. The guy was in jail most of the time. Tried to kill me when I was a baby. So I didn't really have much to do with him. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's got to be better than that, right? And so over time, I had to come to this place where I had to either, I was going to believe this guy actually cared about me or he didn't. And, and it took time. It wasn't like one day my mom decided to marry this guy and all of a sudden he's daddy. He wasn't daddy. I didn't even know him. In fact, the whole time that I knew him, from the time I met him when I was six until he died, the day he died, I called him Mitch. All right? But I had to somehow come to a place where I had to make a decision about it. And I, I think part of the maturing process as I grew up, and part of seeing the consistency that he had toward me, and seeing what, either the way that he treated me, the way that he treated my mother, the way that he provided mostly for us, or whatever he was doing, but he was all, he would sacrifice for us so that we would have all these other things. And over time, I began to trust him more and more, and I began to identify him as my father, even though I knew he wasn't my physical father. But he took the role. And I was able at some point to trust him to the point that when he and my mother broke up, they were down in Mississippi. I didn't go with them when they went to Mississippi. I stayed where I was. But they broke up, got a divorce down in Mississippi. My father, he came back so that I could live with him my first year of college, and he took care of me. Even though he was no longer associated with my natural mother. And that, I guess more than anything, and I'd already come to my decisions about it, but that proved it to me that he and I were connected somehow. So somehow, you have a Heavenly Father. I have a Heavenly Father. And you can think of it any way you want. Uh, we obviously, all of us have natural fathers. But we have a Heavenly Father who loves us, cares for us, and wants the best for us. And He's looking out for us. And over time, as we grow up and we mature, we need to recognize that somehow. We need to see it. We need to experience it. And and I, I want to encourage you to begin to force this to make a decision about who he's going to be in your life. And not just let it ride. Don't let it ride on doctrine. Don't let it ride on, on theology. Don't let it ride on theory or ideas or whatever it is. But literally figuring out who is this going to be in your life. And as you can mature into that, and, and maybe you have to force it to come to a bigger, better decision in your life about what you're actually going to do with that. Because, I mean, like in my situation, you've been to court, he said, I want him, and you at one point said, okay, yeah, he can be my father. 
You made that decision. All right? But that seven-year-old that made that decision still didn't trust him as a father, just like we don't trust him as a real father either. Until we do. And so I want to encourage you to come into that with him. To come into that place where maybe you need to sit down and recognize who he is and how he's, he's taking care of you and how he's treating you and the way that he's showing his love for you. Maybe you need to take note of that in your life. But to come to a place of decision where, yes, yes, you're my, you're my real father. You're my dad. And that doesn't negate our physical father. It doesn't negate any of that. But he is our real dad. Our heavenly father is. And the day that we can accept that, the day that we can actually start living in that, will be the day that we'll offer up some of these prayers too. And, and I really believe God wants us into that place. He wants us to, to, whatever we need to do to get there. And so Jesus, he started off, he says, I, I want, and I'll change it to our perspective, but I want you with me. That's what he's saying to us. You know, those believers that he's praying for there, that's us. They were the ones far off. But he's saying, I want you with me. That's what Jesus is saying. That communion, that intimacy, that he wants us with him. And, and there is something about that relationship. There's something about that place with him. Something about that, that abiding that's important to our faith. And it's pretty unique to our faith too. God himself is calling us, I want you with me. And he also said this, he says, I want you to see my glory. And when he says that, when he, when he talks about how he wants us to see his glory, to experience him that way, this isn't his God glory. In other words, that glory that he had from the beginning of time. This is specifically his glory as the mediator. Understanding the glory that the Father had given him as the Son. And, and the mediator speaks to him being on our side. The, the mediator speaks to him being with us. The mediator speaks to him being fuller, deeper, clearer understanding as the glory the Father gave to Jesus. You know, the Father gives glory to the Son. And the Son is directly related to Jesus' humanity. And, and I, I'll say this, and I know people get all upset when I start talking about this, but, but Jesus became a Son when He was born. Alright? He wasn't ever born before Mary. Jesus... Yeah, and, and we can call him whatever we want, but he existed as the Word of God. There was the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And they all existed forever. But he became the Son, and our understanding of the Son, when he got born. In other words, he became a human being. He became a person. When the Holy Spirit conceived him in Mary, the Word became flesh. That whole thing in John, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice how it says the Word. The Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. And the Word was this, and the Word was that, and the light, and the dark, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Blah, 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 blah. Verse 14. I just quoted that directly, by the way. Verse 14. And this is the transition. 
And it literally, the word here is used as transition. And the word became, or in other words, transitioned into flesh. And we beheld the only begotten of the Father. How was he begotten? He was born. Right? He was born. And people want to make a doctrine out of that and say, well, he was begotten from the beginning. That's impossible. Why do I say that? Because God is God is God. Right? So he was begotten when he was born. The only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Yeah. No. No, because the word could appear. No, not at all. I mean, the word could appear as a son of man. So could angels. Yeah, it doesn't negate it at all. It, it, and, and depending on how you word it, and I'm not hung up on the words or anything, now you say, well, it's Jesus. Okay, fine. But really, Jesus didn't exist until he was born of Mary. So it was the word, literally, the word that manifests himself in to appear as a human. Jesus was more than that, though. And then the whole point of the incarnation was that Jesus not only appeared as a human being, he was a human being. In reality, he was a, he was a flesh and blood human being. He just didn't look like a human. The Word just didn't make himself appear that way, like an angel would or something. He actually became a human being. That's why that the fact that he was begotten is an important, more important doctrine the, the, that Jesus was begotten as a human being is a more important doctrine than the rest of that stuff, the rest of the theology. If you want to really look at a Christology, the important part of the Christology is the actual transition to flesh. That's the important part. Everything hinges on the, the actual incarnation. Otherwise, we just have the Godhead and we have the three members of the Godhead and we can understand their, their functions and their roles and things like that in, in whatever they are as the Godhead. But, but what directly affects us and what makes Jesus central to our faith is the incarnation. That's what makes it completely different. That's what makes it unique to our faith and to who we are is the incarnation. And so Jesus, when he prays this, he's praying you're going to get this. He wants you to get this. He wants you to understand his glory as the mediator, his glory as the incarnate, his glory as the real son of the Father. That's what he wants you to understand. Because if you can understand, if you can see that glory, which is a matter of revelation, but if you can see that glory, you can enter into that glory. And I'll tell you who doesn't want you to see that glory, and I'll tell you who doesn't want you to enter into that glory, and that's the devil. Because you enter into that kind of glory, you enter into that kind of understanding, you enter into that kind of revelation, his power over you diminishes greatly. If not entirely. Because all of the tricks no longer work. And I call them tricks because they are tricks. Well, I'll make him feel guilty. Nah, yeah, that didn't work. I'll make him feel ashamed. I'll just despise it anyway. Doesn't matter. You, you go down the whole list of all his tricks, not going to work. 
Well, God doesn't love you. I know He does. Shut up. God's not looking out for you. He, he's causing bad things to happen. No, He's not. He wants the best for me. Shut up. Like, all of those tricks and all of those lies and all the stuff that He uses against people all the time, they, they just fade away. As we can get a revelation of the glory of who Jesus is. Really. As the mediator, as, as the Son of Man in His humanity. Because he, he declares he's like the love is a response from the Father. The Father like loved has loved him from the beginning of time. He loved him as the Word. He loves him as Jesus. He loves him as the Son of God, Son of Man. He loves him. He loves him. And it's all a response. And, and you see the you, you think about the communion that Jesus talks about. He's like, I want you with me. And in, and in that sense, he calls us right now. And, and so we have a certain degree of communion with him. We have a certain degree of intimacy with him. But it's, and, and it's real. It's real intimacy. And it's real, we're really having communion with him. The, the issue that we get hung up on, and I want to dismiss this, uh, if you can dismiss this out of your mind, is it's not perfect. It's not perfect. And it's not going to be. Okay, And if you expect it to be perfect, and it's not, then you're tempted to dismiss it. But it's never going to be perfect. At least not in this lifetime. No way. So, so the communion we do have, and the intimacy we do have is real. That's what we need to major on in our hearts and our minds, is that this is real. It's just not perfect. What relationship do you have that's perfect? I mean, what intimacy do you share with anybody that's perfect? What communion do you have with anybody that's perfect? You know, people that are, you know, I counsel people getting married, right? Yeah, what are they looking for? Somehow, some way, in our hearts or minds, we've come to this place where we think there's going to be some perfection that's going to happen in these areas of our life, and it never does. Never. And so we're left with these, these semi-broken kind of relationships and this semi-broken kind of intimacy and this semi-broken kind of communion with the other, whoever that other is. It's like, well, this isn't working. It may be working completely perfectly, actually. I mean, not perfectly in the sense that everything's perfect, but the way it's supposed to, I should say. It's working the way it should. In whatever imperfect fashion that, that human beings produce. Because everything we produce is imperfect. And so you got two imperfect people producing an imperfect relationship, imperfect communion, imperfect intimacy, and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's real. It's real. So let it be. Let it be. Because, I mean, what, what more are we looking for? We, we get a revelation of Jesus somehow. He, he's offering, I want you with me. Communion, intimacy, we're, we're drawn to Him. We come into His presence. Sometimes we feel Him more than we do others. Sometimes we see Him more than we do others. Sometimes we hear Him more than we do others. Because it's real and we know it's real. We've seen enough of it. We, we've had enough words over people. We've, we, we've experienced it enough that where we've seen the reality of God in us and through us, we know it's real. It's just never perfect. And that's okay. Get over it. 
And I mean that in the best of ways. Get over that. Because that the important part of it is the reality of it. And, and whatever that's going to produce and whatever that's going to manifest in our, in our whatever it is between us and Him, so be it. So the mediator is the revelation that God wants us to have. Okay, let's look at um, John 6.39. It's kind of an interesting verse. I'm going to give you a little, another little nugget here. It's a nugget. Are you ready for a nugget? John 6.39. Boom. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them Alright, so so what Jesus says here, he says it's the Father's will that he loses none of those that he given him. And that includes us. So we're part of this this God's will. This Father's will. What do you know about the Father's will? What do you know about it? It's done. So Jesus isn't losing you. He's not losing me. In fact, in fact, I want to say this, is that if you see this through to the end, what you begin to see, and I'm talking about the very end of things, is that you've actually lost nothing. No matter what you think you've lost, no matter what sacrifices you think you've made in this lifetime, there will come a day where that perspective is going to be challenged and you will realize that you've lost nothing. How do I know that? It's the will of the Father. That's how I know that. He's not losing you. He's not losing anything important at all. Because you see, when it comes right down to it, you're what's important. And He's not going to lose you. You are not going to be lost, at least not from His doing. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, Jesus... Jesus, and you only see this at the end, he declares, the Father declares his will to Jesus, and Jesus declares that will that none would be lost. And so you're going to see that for sure at the end. It's a matter of faith right now. Can you believe that? Can we believe that? Can we take hold of that and really let that settle deep into us? Like our spirit, like down in there. You know, because seeing the seeing Jesus' glory, because I talked about that, I said fuller, deeper, clearer. That's what he's looking for. But seeing his glory is a matter of revelation. And it's not automatic. It's not automatic. Unless you're dead. Then you'll see it. Yeah. I mean... And, and the way that a lot of the old time interpreters interpreted these verses is that this is talking about when you're dead. I don't believe that. I think this is talking about when we're living. It's talking about now. But it has to be activated. It has to be activated through our faith. Now you, you think about the word seeing here. I want them to see my glory. Well, seeing is more than just vision. 
just being able to see something. What that, that, that word, what it indicates, and the meanings of the word, is that what we do is we participate in it. And we enjoy it. So how are we going to participate and enjoy it if it's not coming till we're dead? And I suppose we'll participate and enjoy it then, but he's given us this word right now. He says, I will that they see my glory right now. He wants to participate in that and enjoy it right now. And so it's more than just dead. The part of seeing him. Well, it's seeing him for, for who he is. It's seeing him as the mediator. Uh, literally? Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I've only had, I've only seen Jesus, I think, once or twice in my life. And, and once, yeah, and once was a dangerous situation that, uh, I, I picked him up as a hitchhiker in the rain. And I think it was him. It could have been masquerading angel or something, but it looked, I, I think it was Jesus. And he spoke to me like Jesus. Now I picked him up, he got in my car, he was all wet and everything. I don't suggest you do this, by the way. But he was all wet and kind of, you know, stringy and everything. And he gave me a couple words, said a couple things to me, and then just disappeared. Was your seat wet afterwards? Yes. Yeah. You think he could have cleaned that up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was really wet, and, and, he st- and like the car steamed up. Because he was wet when he got in it. It was, it was literally like somebody hopped in the car, right? And then he just left. So that was one time that happened. There's been one other time too, but not as interesting as that time. And not dangerous either. So, the, the issue though is seeing him for who he is in us. Right? Seeing him for his mediation. Seeing him as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Seeing him as the one who's on our side. Seeing him for the one who is with us. Who wants the best for us. Who's praying for us right now. Really experiencing him like that. And enjoying and participating in that with him. You can participate in his sonship with him. Why do I say that? Because he's the firstborn among many brethren. Who are the brethren? Who are they? Us. And as obvious as that sounds, and as obvious as people, you know, say, oh yeah, the firstborn among many brethren, that's us, blah, blah, blah. Do you really act like that? You're really living like that? You're participating in that kind of sonship? Daughter? Ship? Whatever? Are we really participating in that? And living in that? And maturing into that with our Father? Let's look up a few verses. Uh, someone, uh, John 3, 3. And then someone, Matthew 5, 8. John 3, verse 3, and Matthew 5, verse 8. He replied, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Alright, so how do you see the rule and reign of Jesus? You can, okay, when you die, <laughs> that is an accurate answer. But other than dying, you die twice. So what happens? You're born again. 
Alright, so, so there needs to be some kind of a spiritual birth that takes place if we're going to really have this kind of vision, if we're going to participate in it, and if we're going to enjoy it. And there's been plenty of sermons preached on being born again. Plenty of them. What I want to emphasize on this, and this is directly from the foundational teachings, what I want to emphasize about this verse is this, is that Jesus is speaking about being born of the Spirit here. Specifically. How was he born? Who was his father? Who, who impregnated Mary? The Spirit. So he was born of the Spirit. Although he was born of a woman. But what being born of the Spirit did for him is that it released him from the bondage of sin. And gave him a clear choice. In other words, whatever it was that we passed down in our human bodies to one another whatever that is, that leads us into this place where we have a propensity to sin, where we live under the curses of God that he gave over Adam and Eve from the very beginning, whatever those things were, they were broken in Jesus because he wasn't born of a human father. He was born of the Spirit. And so because he was born of the Spirit, he had the opportunity to live his life and make real choices. In other words, the Bible says he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. Why was he without sin? Because he chose not to sin. Could he have sinned? He could have sinned or he didn't have a valid choice. It was possible for him to sin. That created a choice. He made the choice not to. He was tempted. Didn't do it. Yes. Well, he, he declared what was important. In other words, to me, Jesus embodied and also proclaimed what God cared about, what the Father cared about. Which isn't necessarily what the Pharisees cared about. And therefore, not necessarily what we care about. Because as, human, as humans, we tend toward legalism. Unless something sets us free from it. He did not tend toward legalism. But he demonstrated what God really cared about, what he was really concerned about. But he was tempted. But what was he tempted with? We knew three things. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. We know the three things that were Satan came to him in the wilderness right. and he was tempted. Right. So those three different things. And then it says Satan left him until a more opportune time. So what, where, what else was he tempted at? Well, we don't know. But all points like we are. So what are we tempted with? We're tempted with all kinds of things. We're tempted with pride, lust, uh, whatever. Lying, you know, whatever it is. So the idea behind it is that 
he had to experience those emotions. But the things that he was tempted with when he was out in the desert, I mean, it wouldn't have necessarily been sin for Jesus to do that. But he chose not to. Well, it, you know what it would have been? It would have been denial of who he was. All right, Because the bottom line to every one of the temptations of the devil was that it was predicated on Jesus not being who he knew he was. So if he could have convinced Jesus that he wasn't who he was, if he could convince him that, uh, like, somehow convince him against his own sonship, against his relationship with his father, if he could have convinced him of that, then Jesus, then Jesus would have taken up one of those things that he offered him. It would have been a denial of who he was. So it's kind of like Satan's biggest thing is, is if he can convince people that they aren't who they are, if he can obliterate their identity, then he has control. Right. Absolutely. Because his tricks work. Yeah. At that point, his tricks work. Yeah. You see, his tricks didn't work on Jesus because Jesus knew who he was. So, But that's Satan's tricks. That's what he does. He, if he can change your circumstances, and then you see yourself differently, he's got you. That's the point. Because if the circumstances, we're not defined by our circumstances. We're not defined by that stuff. Job understood that, even though he struggled. Of course, he struggled, but he still maintained his identity. Even though there were people telling him, it's your fault, his wife, curse God and die. He's maintained his identity, he stood strong. And he endured and was blessed even more at the end. And, and remember too, that is a primitive story. That's before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's before any of the patriarchs ever came along. That's a really primitive story. That's primitive faith. But it's the same message. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know about that relationship between you and God. And you've got to live in that. And if we can do that, there's victory in that. It's the same story. It's primitive and good. Alright? Because it, it applies. The more primitive you can get, the, the, the wider the application. All right, another uh, Matthew five eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I've talked about this a lot. This is also, or has been, in some forms of the foundational teachings. Pure in heart is, and I, I, I don't try to define this any other way than pure in heart just means of one thing, one thing. That's what pure is. Pure gold is. Just gold. Nothing else in it. Alright? 
pure silver, pure whatever, is just, that's all it is. And so what Jesus says, he makes a declaration here, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. In other words, those people that are just one thing. One thing. That's all they are. Not, and, and understand what that means. One thing, you're not complicated, right? You're pretty simple if you're one thing. You're just pretty simple about it. One thing is not complicated. One thing is not confused. One thing is not torn in three different directions. One thing is not running around with your, like a chicken with your head cut off. All right? One thing is one thing. And there's a simplicity to that. And he says, blessed are those who, whose hearts just one thing. They'll see God. And, and people try to attach all kinds of morality to that. They try to attach all kinds of stuff to that. And that's not what that verse is about at all to me. That verse is about being of one thing, one substance. That's it. One, that's, that's what purity is. But they're going to see God. So that gives us two things that speaks to us about seeing his glory. Because he's praying, he says, I want you to see my glory. That's what Jesus said about us. He says, I want them to see my glory as the mediator, as the one that's on their side, as the one that's looking out for them, as the firstborn among many brethren, as the one who became flesh, as the one who has led the way and showed the way this whole time. So that's what I want them to see. I want to really see that. I want to experience that. I want them to participate in that and to enjoy that in their lives. That's what he wants. And those verses we just read, they begin to give us a clue about that. Being born of the Spirit. In other words, being set free to make choices. To live in what's really important and not worry about the rest. Being born of the Spirit is being connected with God and, and being brought back into that place that He created us to be in. Being born of the Spirit is leaving behind all that the stuff that gets in the way of a simplicity of a relationship that the Father wants us to know, participate in, and really, really enjoy. And the pure in heart, that's another clue as to how we see His glory. We're just one thing. Just be one thing. Don't be ten things. Don't be crazy running around. Just one thing. If you can be one thing, that's who God shows himself to. You know, not everybody in the Bible was super holy. Do you know that? There are people in the Bible that weren't that holy at all. But God showed himself to them. David wasn't that holy. David killed tens of thousands of people in his lifetime. God showed himself to him. Moses wasn't that holy. He was a murderer. Ran away as a coward. Hid on the backside of the desert. God showed himself to him. Might have been his hinder parts, but it was him. Saul was participating. In other words, he was, conspiracy-wise, was a murderer. Conspiring to murder Christians. But God knocked him off a horse one day and revealed himself and showed himself to him. And, and I guess I could go on and on. I mean, the disciples <clears throat> weren't that holy. 
I mean, at the end of three years with Jesus, Peter was still striking out in anger and cutting off a guy's ear with a sword and denying him. So, so getting that out of our thinking is important. Purity has to do with one substance here. I'm all about this one thing, man. That's it. And living our lives out that way. That's who sees God. A couple more verses here. 1 John 3, 2. First John three two. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Alright. That whole verse and, and to me, that whole verse talks about being children and recognizing our place before the Father. That whole verse talks about what it is to enter into our sonship, into our daughtership with our Father and to actually abide there and live in that. And like I said before, that communion, that intimacy is real, but it's not perfect. And that verse kind of describes it. When does it get perfect? When you're dead, maybe. You'll see Him as He is. But until then, we're on a sliding scale moving ourselves toward that seeing Him as He is, and understanding Him and knowing Him as He is. And that intimacy and that communion is real. Is real. It's just not perfect. So we need to live in that reality. And John 1.14 is the verse already quoted, but the Word became flesh, we beheld His glory. In other words, that verse describes us seeing Him and understanding Him. In his humanity. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. You see, that's how we see him. That's how we participate. That's how we enjoy his glory. It's what he did in the flesh. That's our only way to really relate to him. And that's okay. It's good. He provided that for us and he wants us to relate to him that way. And so relating to Him relates us to the Father. Relating to Him relates us to the Holy Spirit. Relating to Him puts us in a position where we understand who we are as we understand who He is. You see, the, the, the bottom line, and I started off with this, Jesus praying this, He wants us with Him. The bottom line is that physical comfort or physical improvement, they can't answer God's purposes for His love in us. They just can't. If they could, he would just lavish nice things on us and money on us all the time, but they, that doesn't fulfill his purpose of his love in us. Life is a part of that fulfillment, and so as part of life, there are things that come, and the things that go, and there's people that come, and there's people that go, and there's situations and there's circumstances, and there's all those things that are going to come our way, but it's through those circumstances, it's through whatever it is that comes our way that God's purposes of his love are fulfilled in us. Because ultimately, what fulfills those purposes in us is that we abide 
within him. That's it. There, there's no other way to fulfill what he wants to do in us except for abiding in us and us in him. And as Job figured out, if you can abide in him and he abides in us, then things come and things go. But if you can maintain your identity in all of that, things come again. Alright? And I know that's a hard lesson, and it's a hard lesson for all of us, because we like security, we like to know things, we like to have things planned out, we like to be able to predict things, we like predictability and all that kind of stuff in our lives, but they're really, they're, it's an illusion. It's all an illusion. The reality is, Abiding in Him and Him abiding in us. The reality is loving Him, Him loving us through that relationship, that communion, that intimacy that He has for us. Jesus, I want to see you. So we see Him. If we're all about it, we're all about it. I don't know. Might be in the toilet. Getting it all wet. So that abiding with is the key. All right, any questions or comments? Was that too weird? Anybody? Yes. What ultimately, though, what are hurt and disappointment? Hmm? Yeah, in other words, you have a certain set. We all have certain expectations we, that we want. Things we want in life, things we want to see, ways that we want to live, ways we want to be treated, all those kind of things. Well, when that doesn't happen, we get hurt and we get disappointed. But the reality of that is, is that who set that up to happen to start with? I did. And so, and so, the the easy question for the easy answer for that is: we do get hurt, we do get disappointed, and that's why we have a comforter that helps us through those times. That's the easy answer to that. The harder answer to that is that we've set up expectations. That are bound to fail. And so hurt and disappointment are predictable. But that's just being human, that's a human nature thing. Right. Or else you don't understand the way God. Absolutely. You're just missing simplicity. Well, I think, yeah, I think, uh, well, what you just said then begins to enter into. An area of trust. What you just said. Because our expectations are, this is the way it's going to be, and this is how it is. When that's not met, we get hurt, we get disappointed. But when we begin to move into that area of, well, I don't understand what God's doing. Well, I don't know that Job understood what God was doing either. Well, what did he do? He just stuck it out. He didn't know. So... 
enemy uses that to bring rebellion, to push people further away. Well, right, because that because that's what's going to happen if we lose our sense of identity. It's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, how Job had how many people pushing him away? Three friends. Well, three, four. His wife. Yeah. Mm, I'm not sure I followed the 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 full well, the, the, the full last, part. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely, because we we don't understand our we don't understand what it is to be a son or a daughter. He's not going to fail us. That's impossible. <laughs> so, so understanding our identity is saying, yeah, I know who I am. I might not understand what's going on, or I might not see it, I might not get it, but I know he hasn't failed me because he does. The father doesn't fail his kids. It's not what happens. So that the that part of it would be an impossibility. It's not even a thought to have. Unless our identity is screwed up. Then we're pawns and he just does what he wants. That's not sons or daughters. Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Father, thanks for loving us. I just want to say thanks, Jesus. Wow, you, you are our mediator. You're the one that loves us. You care for us. You take care of us. You pray for us. You, you look out for us. The word became flesh. You came like us. I just ask that uh, we get a revelation of your glory tonight as our mediator. God, you, you said to be born again. I pray and over our hearts and lives that you would break the curses over us and the power of sin, that we would be born of the Spirit. And I ask you, God, that there would be a purity of heart that would rise up in us just a simplicity. One thing. Not complicated. Not all crazy. Not just running around. But just one thing. Because we want to see Jesus. We want to see His glory. We want to enter into our sonship. We want to mature into our daughtership, our sonship. And God... Knowing a loving Father that takes care of us and looks out for us. You want us with you, Jesus. And I thank you that's what matters. 
So I just asked that other things would just fade away. Even now. They wouldn't have to wait till we're dead for things to fade away. But I pray for stuff that doesn't matter to fade away now. As we find ourselves abiding in you. Give you thanks, Jesus. We ask these things in your strong name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. All right. Good to see everybody tonight. Thank you for coming. And we'll see you again soon.